the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Glory be to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, now and ever, and unto the ages of all ages, amen. So today's topic is about why to repent. Um, and uh, as you may or may not remember, this series that we're doing is based on a book written by His Holiness Pope Shunda III, God Bless His Soul, um, called The Life of Repentance and Purity. And um, he wrote this book initially in Arabic, and a couple of, the, a couple of uh, some sermons which he preached were also inserted in by him afterwards, but it was largely written by him in Arabic. Um, and there are only a handful of books, actually, that were written by His Holiness Pope Shenouda, and they were all written in Arabic. The rest are all sermons that he preached, and over the years, they gathered them to beings. You know, the fear of God, they gathered a bunch of sermons and so on. And so, you preach differently than you write. When you speak, you tend to be more, you give more examples, and you you, 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 you give a, a, a lot, of, because people are listening, and it's not, um, it's not an active process. So the, the books that the Pope wrote, like Release of the Spirit, are, are really, they're all really nice. Now they're all written in Arabic and translated, so sometimes the translation is not perfect. In this case, this book was re-translated by His, His Grace Bishop Suriel and published by St. Vladimir's Press. So, um, so uh, like this book is you know, accepted in the Oriental Church, in the Eastern Orthodox Church, um, Let's just say it's a great book. So the church has purchased a bunch of copies, um, and they're available actually. Um, um, Andrew, can I ask you downstairs in the boardroom table, you'll find a basket with, the, with this, these books in them. Can I ask you to just grab them? Andrew will grab them for us and put them on the table up here. Whoever would like to grab a copy, you're more than welcome. If you'd like to leave a donation, you're also more than welcome, but certainly not obliged. The next set of chapters in the book that, that, that um, um, written by His Holiness is Why to Repent. And I have to tell you, I prepared like 37 slides or something, but I didn't prepare a slide about this. And I can't believe, like on my way to church, I was like, I can't believe, I'm not gonna say this. This is the most important reason. This is the most important reason overall. But I know that when I'm tempted by sin, this is probably the last thing I'm going to think of. The most important reason to repent overall is that there is nothing that brings more joy to the kingdom of heaven than one sinner who repents. I experienced this in the church that I grew up in. I had a, a, a friend, a really good friend. He's like my neighbor. Um, and... Um, he, he's a great guy, he's sort of into God, but not really, and you know, whatever, everybody's got their own walk, and who am I to judge? He was my really good friend, we rode our bikes everywhere growing up, we had, we had a great time together. And, um, and then he, he joined the military, and then he went to, um, to a war-torn area uh, on tour, to, on tours, like when people who are in the military go and serve, like on the battlefield, that's what it's called, they go on tour. They're not like touring Europe, like, well he was in Europe, he went to like, like uh, Serbia and Bosnia and that area, and basically they were there, they were like the blue, he was like one of the blue helmet guys, and they were there to clean up the mess. So his job was to bag bodies, and go around to people's homes and little villages to try to get his bodies identified. He came back and he was just something, something had happened to him. Something had happened to him. And he just didn't go out, he didn't talk, he didn't want to do anything. Yeah. Many of us tried to like get him out of the house, but 
I mean, and you talked to him, and he like he was his own, his old self, except he loved going out and having a great time and stuff, and he didn't do any of that anymore. He just wanted to stay home. But at home, he seemed pretty normal. But his family kept telling us, he's not okay, help him, please help him, he's not okay. Anyways, um, then he decided to go back to school. He went back to school, he made some friends, uh, and then he started partying like crazy. He just, he just went completely nuts. Um, and he lived that life for a couple of years. And um, a couple of us started a prayer meeting at church for the people who had stopped coming to church. And um, someone had added his name to the list, so we prayed for him. We also were praying for another guy who was also one of our friends growing up who had also kind of just disappeared. Anyways, we prayed for the both of them. And both of them, within six weeks of each other, met God for real. I don't know that they had an apparition or anything. I know them well and they share their stories with me. But this, that's, not, that's not what I want to tell you. What I want to tell you is that there was a spirit of joy that invaded the church like wildfire at the repentance of the first guy. And just as the joy was starting to die down, the second guy came, came back to God. And the church was just exploding with joy. Everybody was joyful. Everybody was joyful. A church of a Sunday attendance of 800 people, everybody was joyful. It's one of those churches that's like, not, it's not like our church. It's like busting at the seams and people are hanging out the windows. One of those kinds of churches, right? And everybody was happy. And you'd ask people, you'd ask people, what are you so joyful? Like, I'm just happy I came to church. We're just so lucky that we come to church and meet God and pray. And like lots of places don't have churches. In Egypt, they can't build churches. People were making up reasons why they were happy. But the small group of us who were praying, we were pretty sure we knew why. Because the temporal coincidence was just perfect. And then the second hit, when the joy was starting to die down, and this guy repented, and, and then the joy went up again, it was like, okay, something, you know? The kingdom, the church is the kingdom of God on earth, and indeed the kingdom of heaven rejoices more over one sinner who repents. You and I, by our repentance... You and I, by our repentance, have the ability to make all of the kingdom of heaven, all the saints and angels, bounce for joy. With so much joy, it overflows into the kingdom of God on earth here. And it lasts, I'm telling you, over a month. I was in a prayer meeting, I used to lead a, a prayer meeting on Thursday nights for like five or six years when I was in university. Since I started university and onwards. Actually, even before I, before my last year of, of Seja. Anyways, whatever. So I had this prayer meeting and I used to coach basketball, um, like high school boys basketball. One of the guys came to the prayer meeting once. He's a great guy, top, top guy, but lives a perfect double life. Perfect in church, party animal outside. And he's in high school, so it wasn't legal. But that's okay, it was Montreal, everything's legal, right? And so, right? But he does it perfectly. Like he doesn't, he never gets the wires crossed. Never hits on the girls at church. Just, he's got it, he's got it down, you know? And it was his problem. So some people think he's a saint. His friends, of course, you know, believe that he's a work in progress, just like all of us. He comes to this prayer meeting. Halfway through, door opens, door closes. Lights are off. You know, we're all just praying. So we finish singing some song, and he just starts confessing openly all his sins. I knew him very well. 
He was, I was like, I was, he's an only child, I was like his older brother. All his sins, just confessing. All of us felt it. It was like, it was like the whole chapel we were in, which was in the basement of the Montreal Children's Hospital, got shaken off of its foundations and transported to heaven. We felt like we were in heaven. We lost track of time, we lost track of space, we didn't know anything that was going on. We were somewhere else. This one person whom we could have judged him or looked down at him brought us to the kingdom of heaven. We really felt that we were in heaven. How grateful I am to him. And how high do I hold him in, in regard? The person we're going to talk about this next week, the person who confesses is the, the highest person, is the greatest gift of the church. Never be ashamed, St. John Chrysostom says, when you confess. Be ashamed when you delay your confession. And we're going to share lots of other quotes, but we're going to leave confession for next week. Why to repent? Basically, it comes down to this. If I know who I am, if I know who I am, I cannot do anything other than to repent. I cannot stay in my sin. Last week, we finished with this beautiful prayer of Manasseh. In the, in the Old Orthodox Bible, it's the last book of the Bible right before the Gospel of Matthew. So if you're looking for it, these are screenshots from Coptic Reader. If you're looking for it in Coptic Reader, and you want to, if you want to pray a prayer of repentance and you just don't know what to say, you can go to Psalm 50, you can go to Psalm 6, you can go to all these different prayers. You can go to the prayer of Manasseh. You just open the Coptic Reader, go to the Bible, you know, and then scroll through and you find Matthew, go one before it, and you'll find the prayer of Manasseh. And we, we finished with that last week, but we didn't talk about Manasseh in too much detail, so I'm going to talk about him a little bit more today. Manasseh was a king, the son of King Hezekiah, and King Hezekiah was a good king, the kings before him were bad. King Hezekiah removed all the idols. So what they would do is they would set up an altar and then they would put idols on the altar. So what King Hezekiah did, he removed all the idols, but he didn't destroy the altars. Manasseh, his son, came, and he was a great guy, lovely. He rebuilt the altars, he rebuilt the idols, and he put the idols on the altars. Here's a little brief description of what he did. He rebuilt the high places, those altars like on the hills and stuff like that which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He raised up all the altars for Baals and made wooden images, and he worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. In the temple, he built altars for idols. Okay, like what, what greater betrayal, right? He built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. Also, he caused his sons to pass through fire. This was a, a, a way of uh, um, a worship ritual uh, in, the, in the pagan nations around Israel to burn their children alive for the gods, to offer their children as a burnt sacrifice, alive, okay? God hates, hates that. There's nothing that makes God's eyes pop out of his head and see more than this. You find whenever this is written, you can see God is gonna, he's, he's, he's gonna explode, okay? He practiced soothsaying, witchcraft, sorcery. He consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He even set a carved image, the idol which he had made in the house of God. 
So Manasseh seduced Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Like God told the children of Israel, I'm going to destroy the nations that are in Canaan and give you the promised land because they have done evil in my sight. So he went and did greater evil than those people. This is Manasseh. And his dad was good. Like you can say the kings before Hezekiah, like he was a bad king, the son of a bad king, the son of a bad king, the son of a bad king. Okay, so like maybe, but his dad was good and his dad did good. And this is what Manasseh did. Oh my goodness. So what happened to him? The Lord spoke, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they would not listen. God sent him multiple prophets. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the captains of the army, the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh with hooks and bound him with bronze fetters and carried him off to Babylon. I mean, the picture is kind of hell to tell the story, right? And he gets thrown into Babylon and he's thrown in the dungeon and they put him in stocks, you know, like where your hands and feet are chained to each other. Like he can't even, he can, he can't even move, like all he can do is like roll over onto his side. And he's waiting to find out what they're going to do to him. And as he's in all this affliction, he prays and he implores God and he humbles himself and he prays that beautiful prayer of repentance that we shared last week and we won't belabor today. And God, in his mercy, takes him out of Assyria and brings him back and makes him king again. Look at the grace of God. Look at how gracious God is. But see, the problem with this story, and I didn't mention this at the beginning, so I could mention it now. Manasseh became king when he was 12 years old. He became king when he was 12 years old. I mean, honestly, I think like, you know, I kind of demonized him and made him look so, like such a horrible person. But the reality is, I mean, he was 12 years old. How many dumb things did I do when I was 12 years old? How many dumb things did I do when I was 24? How many dumb things did I do when I was 36? You know, how many, you know, unwise things do I do and say even now at my age? The kid was 12 years old. He made a mistake. What was his problem? Rebellion against God, maybe. But one problem for sure was that he was immature and he just didn't know what royalty is supposed to be like. He didn't know what a king is supposed to do. A king is supposed to lead his nation. A king, king of God is supposed to lead his nation the way God wants them to be led. What about you? What about me? Do you know that you also are a king and queen? Do you know that also... You are a king and queen with Christ. Do you know also that you have received this authority from the Lord? And how am I behaving? Maybe the reason I'm, I'm not acting, you know, the role, why I'm not living the role of a king or a queen is because I, I haven't yet matured to the point where I'm ready to rule. But like Manasseh, I've been thrown into this great privilege, this great honor, this royalty. Jesus says to his disciples, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, and you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones judging the tribes of Israel. You who have followed me, all of you have followed him. 
You have followed him, so you will reign with him. I was saying about St. Moses, right, that, you know, we, we call Jesus the king of kings. Who are these other kings, right? There is no king but you, Lord. When we say that to him, he looks to us and says, no, you will reign with me. You will reign with me. I want to share my kingdom with you. I want to give authority to you. If we follow him, if we follow him, we'll reign with him. In St. Peter's first epistle, he says, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. Look, sometimes somebody says something about me or looks at me in a funny way or, 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 or doesn't, doesn't respect me the way they should or whatever, and it gets on my nerves and it, it irks me and, you know, it, it makes me, you know... And recently, having married somebody British has helped a lot. Um, and uh, in that, um, we talk about the Queen and the Royals and this and that and stuff like that. And, you know, Mary's trying to bring me up to speed to, to what's going on in the world outside of my little cocoon that I live in. Right? And I often ask myself, if someone did that to the Queen, what would she do? Right? Lots of lovely young ladies here and saw a lot of you live downtown and probably walking through the entertainment district and, you know, some drunk guy starts whistling at you. You want to cross the street and smack him across the back of the head, right? Now, if that happened to Queen Elizabeth, what would she do? Nothing. She would take no regard. What would she do? Nothing. My dad says this phrase, and I remember it all the time in my head. He says to me, if someone says, to you, if someone says something to you which is inconsiderate, don't consider it. Just don't give it any consideration. Or sometimes he would say to me, if someone didn't think before they said something to you, maybe you shouldn't think too much about it either. If they didn't take the time to think about it before they said it, maybe you shouldn't spend half a day or a week or two weeks or three months thinking about it. It wasn't, a, it wasn't even worth them to think about for a second before it came out of their mouth. Why are you, you know, basing your life upon it now? You're royalty. You are royalty. Kings and queens. I was involved uh, with somebody who um, was caught shoplifting. And so uh, I was advocating for them in the legal system, telling them this person is a great person and whatever. Everybody has slip-ups and this and that. You know what's the funniest thing? This person is actually quite wealthy, and what they were shoplifting was something they could have easily afforded a hundred times over as many times as they wanted. Why did they do it? I don't know. Some little demon tempted them, and they fell. But the worst part of the whole thing for this person, as they were going through this whole... It's not somebody in our congregation, right? It's just somebody that... The church, lots of random people walk into the church midweek and so on, and we serve them, Right? The worst part of the whole thing for this person was saying what they shoplifted. You know, it's like, it's like, I don't know, name a rich person, right? Gets caught shoplifting a stick of gum. Like, I don't know, steal the crown jewels or something, you know? But like a stick of gum? 
Like a stick of gum? Are you serious? Right? The worst part of it for this person, like they would have wished that they stole something more that wouldn't have made the story sound so ridiculous, so incredibly ridiculous. That's what you and I do when we sin. In Deuteronomy, the Lord says, Today the Lord has proclaimed you to be His special people, just as He promised you, that you should keep His commandments and that He will set you high above all nations, which He has made in praise, in name, and in honor, and that you might be holy people to the Lord your God, just as He has spoken. You get the point. In Christ, I am royalty. I am royalty. But King Manasseh became royalty a bit too young. And maybe that's your fault and mine. Maybe the problem isn't that you're just rebellious and you just, you just want to stick it to God. You want to. Maybe your problem and mine is we just became, we just need to mature a little bit faster to realize that, hey, we're worth so much more than this. I really shouldn't stick, st stoop that low. In Christ, here's another one, I am beloved. Look at the words of Scripture, the words of God to you and to me. In Song of Solomon, he says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. I am my beloved's and he is mine. The Lord looks to you and he says, you are my beloved. And he doesn't say it to you the way he says it to everybody else. For the lack of a, of a term of endearment in, in English that would be understood correctly, I use one in Arabic frequently with people left and right, habibi, habibti, and so on. The way I say it to you all is very different from the way I say it to Mary, my wife. The way God's saying it to you is the way I say it to Mary, my wife. You are not one of many. You are the beloved. The beloved. He only has one of you. And he loves you. And he says, you are my beloved. And he's waiting for you and for me to say, and he is mine. Also from Song of Solomon says, his mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Like, this is... Like, I want to show off my God who says to me, this is my beloved. He loves you. He loves me. It's a very privileged, such a privileged position. Jealousy in marriage is a terrible thing and it can cause all kinds of havoc. But for very mild cases of jealousy, the advice we commonly give to the, to the person, not the person who's jealous, the other spouse, is just to douse love on the other person. It can get much more complicated than that. But in the beginnings, all, the, all sometimes that person needs to feel is your attention and your love. And see, they can then clearly see that it's way disproportionate to the attention and love that, that, that you give to your work, your, friends that you play hockey with, or this or that, or whatever, or, and so on, right? So, all I need to feel is a little bit of the love of God 
to remember that I am his beloved. He has chosen you. He has chosen me. He loves you. He loves you. The Father says about the Son, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Church is telling us that the favor that is bestowed on the Son is bestowed on you and me in as much as we in as much as we share in the life of Christ. It's as long as I'm in Christ, as long as I'm repenting and re- returning to be in Christ, every now and again I wander off, but then I return and I'm in Christ, all the favor that is on Jesus is on me. Ask yourself, on a scale of 0 to 100, like a percentage scale, how pleased was the Father with the Son on the day of Theophany, on the day of His baptism? How pleased was He? This morning, as I was finishing up some slides and doing little things and whatever, 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, Zoe wakes up. Mary, she was, Zoe woke up about 17 times last night. So poor Mary, so I told Mary, don't worry, I'll take her. Right? She says, are you sure? You need, to, you need to finish your work. And so I told her, don't worry about it, I got it. Right? So I take Zoe and I sit her on my lap and I'm thinking I'm going to sit my four-month-old on my lap and type with one hand, you know, and click and drag and whatever, you know, with one hand. you got to be kidding me. She's looking at me with those big hazel eyes, right? Next thing I look up, an hour has passed. What was I doing for an hour except staring into her eyes, you know, and playing with her and tickling her and making her laugh, and now she laughs and giggles, I tickle her and she laughs and giggles, right? And I'm like, I completely forgot everything, completely forgot the world. I'm selfish, I have limitations. I have my own sins, my own insecurities, my own, and I can take pleasure like this in my child. How much more pleasure does the father have without any of the sin and insecurity and, and limitations and time and of, you know, restrictions that we have? How much more pleasure does the father have in you and in me who are in Christ and share in the pleasure that he has in Christ? In Christ I am pure. Listen to what, there's too many, too, too many beautiful things to say about this, so they're in my notes. Song of Solomon 4.1 Behold, you are fair, my love, you are fair. You have dove's eyes behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats going down Mount Gilead. The words, the words of the beloved, the words of God to, to the soul of the Christian are words of intense love. Intense love. And he sees you only as pure. Like, who wrote the Song of Solomon? Solomon. This guy had a thousand wives and concubines, right? This guy started off well and then a whole bunch of stuff happened. And he knows he can, he can write this love of God. Don't say that this is for St. Mary, this is for St. Catherine, this is for uh, St. Mark or whoever. This is for you. This is for me. This is for the soul. This is for the human soul. This is for you. He loves you. And he only sees you as pure. He only sees you as fair. In, in Psalm 45, it says, So the king will greatly desire your beauty. The king will greatly desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, worship him. 
it becomes clear that no one is worth my worship other than him. My favorite verse, my favorite verse about how God sees you. You know, on a scale of one to ten, how holy are you? You know, where ten is like holy like St. Mary and zero is like sinful like the devil. Okay, on a scale of one to ten, you know, how holy are you? You're five, you're six, you're eight, where are you? As I ask you this question, God comes and pushes me out of the way and says, you're a 10. You're a 10. Don't listen to the guy in the funny costume. Never listen to people talking to you in costumes. They're always trying to sell you something, right? This guy, don't listen to him. You're a 10, God says. You are all fair. He doesn't say you are fair. You are all fair. Like every part of you, like from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet, you are all fair. Every last bit of you is fair, is perfect, is pure, my love. There is no spot in you. Three times in one verse, he's trying to convince you that God does not see anything bad. Look, love keeps no record of wrongs. God doesn't look at you and say, your strengths are this and your weaknesses are he doesn't see weakness. He overlooks it. He says, nobody's got time for that. I don't have time to sit and look at weaknesses. I have too many beautiful things about you to praise. How can I have a relationship with a God like this and then choose to sin? Isn't it obvious? It's obvious. I must repent. I must come back to Him. Look what I'm going back to. Look what I'm going back to. Now, if we look at what sin is, then it, the contrast becomes enormous. I didn't want to belabor this point. Sin is death. Many verses showing us that sin leads directly to death. I'm not, I promised you I wouldn't belabor the point. Sin is fear. And Isaiah 48 says, There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. A friend of mine was, a, was an RCMP officer. He, st he still is, but he used to work the streets. Now he does like, like FBI stuff, like federal investigations. Anyways, the short of the long, um, we're all out for uh, like dinner or something. And uh, we asked him, like, we're asking him about his job and this and that. What's it like being a police officer and so on and so on. And then uh, we asked him, like, what's it like when you're like, have you ever been like in a house with a thief? He's like, oh yeah, it happens like once a week or once every two weeks. He's like, that's like the best part of the job. I'm like, really? Like, what if he's armed or what if he's... He's like, ah, oh, that's, that's nothing. He goes, when somebody has done something wrong and they're about to get caught, they are so scared they can't think straight. Like... I have a thousand to one chances of doing better than this guy. Because I can think straight. He can't. Why? Because he's afraid. He told us about a story where he, he caught one guy. Like he, he went into a room as the guy was trying to come out. The guy looked at him, dropped everything, and couldn't hold, it, couldn't hold his things together. Wet his pants, but like from both ends. Oh, he's not going to run very fast now, right? Fear, fear. When we're in the wrong, we're afraid. We have no peace. 
We're unhappy. We don't sleep well. We treat other people that are unrelated to the issue in the wrong way because we're preoccupied with that and I'm upset about this and I'm insecure about that so I take it out on these people. I just make mess. I make mess of all my relationships when I've sinned. The wicked are like a troubled sea that cannot rest, whose waters are mire and dirt. In Job 15, Job goes off about the wicked. The first verse says, The wicked man writhes with pain all his days, and the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. I could go on, but I'm just going to spare you. Sin is displeasure. Like, I think sin, especially hedonistic sin, is going to give me pleasure. But actually, sin is displeasure. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, and it hides under his tongue, yet his food in his stomach turns sour and becomes like cobra venom within him. Job 20, verses 12 and 14. Becomes like cobra venom within him. Don't believe me? Look at the story in 2 Samuel 13. So, King David had sons. Okay, he had a lot of sons, right? I think 70 some sons, okay? The eldest was Amnon. Amnon was oldest, biggest, tallest, strongest, right? But there was another son whose name was Absalom. Now, Absalom was the most good-looking dude in the entire realm. Like, this guy was just drop-dead gorgeous. And he was charismatic, and everybody loved him. Like, Absalom had it all. Absalom had a sister whose name was Tamar. She probably got some of the same genes that Absalom got, because Amnon fell in love with her. He fell in love with her to, to the extent that he was lovesick. Like, in, in 2 Samuel 13, verse 2, it says, Amnon was so distressed over his sister Tamar that he became sick, for she was a virgin, and it was improper for Amnon to do anything to her. And then Amnon's buddy, Jonadab, comes and sees him. And he's like, dude, like, where are you? We're going out. We're doing this. You're never around. What happened? And he says, oh, I can't. I'm lovesick. I can't. And he says, oh, that's easy peasy. Everybody thinks you're sick. Something's wrong with you. Send to the king. Tell him you're sick. Tell him to send the daughters of the king to come and nurse you back to health. When she comes, dismiss the, uh, you know, the servants and stuff. Do your thing. And there you go, right? And then after that, like, if you slept with, like in the Levitical law, if you slept with a woman that was not your wife, you could pay and then you could pay her dowry and then she would become your wife, right? So then she kind of has to become his wife. And, and in their time, that was not abnormal to marry your stepsister. That was kind of, that was kind of okay. Anyhow, so he takes the advice and he does it, Right? Now listen or read what it says in verse 15. In that moment, the moment of his sin, then Amnon hated her exceedingly, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. Who of us have had that experience? I get tempted to sin. I obsess over it. I daydream over it. I fantasize over it. I do it. And that I hate the sin and hate myself even more than I ever wanted to do it in the first place. It's all written for you here, folks, in black and white. It's prophesied. Sin is displeasure. Sin doesn't make you happy. It doesn't make you happy. It stinks. 
Look how beautiful God is. Look how stinky sin is. So let us repent. St. Peter says in the day of Pentecost, repent then, turn to God, so that your sins may be wiped out and times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Behold, now is the time. Now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. I was listening to a sermon. I'm listening to all these different things now about repentance to try to prepare for this. I listened to this one sermon that terrified me. By the end of it, I, I was terrified and I decided I'm not going to share. I'm not going to share it with you. Uh, the father Matthew the poor was talking about why the time of repentance is limited. He gives like 17 reasons or something, more than 12, of why the time of repentance is limited. Not limited. The first reason is it's limited to this life. Okay, after death, there is no repentance. Fine. But in this life, when I feel ready to repent, I can't miss that boat. Because that boat may or may not come again. God's arms will always be the summary of it. I'm not going to share it all with you so I don't terrify you. The summary of it is God's arms will always be open to receive me. But I will not always want, be able, or feel motivated, encouraged, unhindered, he goes on to execute. God, the, the, the doors of the church will always be open to me. The arms of the Lord will always be open to me. Some say even after the second judgment. Right? But if you feel that now is the time to repent, then now is the time to repent. Not tomorrow. Not in an hour. Nothing cannot be postponed for 20 minutes. If something, if something needs your attention right now and it cannot be postponed for another 20 minutes, you actually probably shouldn't be the person attending to it. You should call 911. Everything else can wait 20 minutes for me to get down on my knees before God in a quiet space and return to Him. The goal, the goal is not not to sin. I'll tell you the truth. I'm afraid to say this that it gets misconstrued, okay? Don't misunderstand me. God doesn't care about your sin and how much you sin. Love, love keeps no record of wrongs. God isn't sitting there saying, okay, John sinned 47 sins, but he only confessed 46. Hmm, what are we going to do with that, John? God's not doing that. God doesn't care about sin. He cares about life. He wants us to live life and that abundantly, John 10, 10. So what God wants us to do is, he wants me to do is finish, finish the little mess I'm making, finish playing in the mud, and go carry on being a king. Go carry on being the beloved of God. Go carry on living the life he meant for me to live. That's what God wants. So the goal here, for those of you who remember some calculus or those of you who are, you know, scientists and mathematicians, if time zero is where I sin, okay, and TR is where I repent, the goal is to bring T to make that time infinitesimally small. The goal is to make that time infinitesimally small. You see on the screen on the right where it says TR? The idea is to slide that the whole way to the left. So the space between T0 and TR is, is immeasurable, is negligible. 
If in the moment I sin, I repent, then I'm living constantly in holiness and in purity. Constantly, I'm living in holiness and in purity. That's the goal of our lives. So finish with a quote from St. Moses. I said this once in a meeting when I was 17 or 18 years old. They literally were going to throw me out the window. Be prepared. St. Moses is a scandalous man. He's going to scandalize you with St. Moses. St. Moses says, If you wish to repent, but you cannot find your repentance, go back and find your repentance in the place of your sin. Because God was there with you. And he gives the example of adultery. Says there were two in that bed. There were three. Jesus was there waiting to receive you back. Glory be to God forever and ever. Amen.